one side's trying to look cooler, trying to make something that's better than the sum of the parts, trying to save face, trying to look exclusive, trying to look hip, trying to you know appeal to new audiences and cross-pollinate a little bit. I mean, there's a lot of things they do. Kato, Plato, Keto, Kato, Soweto, Spoleto, Tomato, and Great Toe. All things that sound like, but are not necessarily related to, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or any woven nylon that may or may not be used to secure a watch to your wrist. And once we have avoided trademark infringements, we talk about some watches too. Enjoy the show! Greetings and welcome to this week's A Blog to Watch Weekly. We have Ariel. Good morning, Ariel. How are you? I'm great. I hear birds singing, but it's not where I am. It's somewhere else, but it sounds so morningy. <laughs> it's possibly where I am, and I hope they don't appear in the microphone. But uh, yes, it is more. It is very definitely morning here. We're in that stage of daylight in Scotland where it gets light at about half past four in the morning, and all the birds wake up when you don't want to. We are joined by David. David, how are you this morning? David is on mute this morning. He certainly is. <laughs> <laughs> why the hell am i on mute god damn it um <laughs> yeah that, that explains how i am i was just saying i'm kind of morningy uh so yeah good morning everyone <laughs> and all the way from escapement 24 the bestest of south wales <laughs> we are joined by simon how are you simon yeah i'm very good feeling nice and rested after a, a week in france so um yeah hopefully bright and breezy uh, any smuggling involved in going to France? Uh, no, that's a whole different story. I don't know if we'll get <laughs> on to that one today. I don't think we'll get on to that today, but we've just had the most interesting of conversations before we press record, and there will be a new podcast series coming as a result of Simon's uh, childhood adventures, so you can listen <laughs> out for that in the future. Just, just to clarify, all... I'm not a smuggler. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're not a smuggler. Uh, good stuff. We have a, a fully ram-packed show this morning so let's crack on first of all with a bit of last week's show this week ariel drum roll we are pleased to announce you as the winner of guess the price of a seiko as a result of oh, yeah. last week's coverage on this astron they finally published how much they were going to charge and the first one was $2,800, and the second one was $2,900. So the average price was 2850 and you guessed 2600 Yep. So you're the closest. So uh, <laughs> Ariel wins, Ariel wins, guess the price of the Seiko. Any thoughts on these Seikos? Simon, you didn't get to take part in the game last week. Would you have guessed over or under? Well, I didn't get to take part, and I would have guessed over, actually, um, because, you know, the, you've got a lot of complications going on in these things, and, you know, look, Seiko's crazy pricing. Um, but what I really just couldn't get and wrap my head around was what relationship these watches have got to do with the film. Uh, do they actually feature in the film? I also have a problem with that, and I think the, I think the answer is probably not. And, <laughs> and get this, we talked about this last week, these watches are debuted prior to these films being available in most world markets. I think maybe there's like some some ways of seeing them in Japan, but like here in, in the United States, it, it, you won't be able to see these movies for months. And, and by the time, you will certainly forget the watches that don't say the name of the film on them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I've got to put it out there and say that I absolutely love how these watches look. I mean, I think they, they look awesome. But, you know, the actual connotation with the film puts me off rather than making me want to buy one. 
I mean, it'll be cool. I think it's 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 a three D film, like a three D animated film, or is this like a uh, a live action film? With Resident Evil, you never know these days. I I think probably with Resident Evil, the one thing you can rely upon is it's probably not a very good film because I think the history of those kind of hey, films they really is not try. Good. <laughs> they feel like they have all the right stuff monsters zombies action you know how can you go wrong i mean apparently very wrong but at least we have the horror of the controls in the early games that memory i will never never forget do do expand i have not played these games oh so the early ones were very difficult to control so part of the horror was that you needed to act quickly like kill something and you could barely aim a gun and there was very limited ammo. So it wasn't that the game was scary. It was dying because you couldn't kill the very easy to get enemy with the awkward controls or run away or something like that. Wait, was this on the Commodore 64? <laughs> no, this was like PlayStation. You say e ESWD. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Joysticks and buttons, sir. <laughs> Joysticks. Joy Do you remember Joysticks joystick you know like you just that's just not a thing now is it yeah, but wasn't it just the wrongest name ever <laughs> the, the wrongest name well the funny thing didn't it come from prior to video games like because i think it was a control in industrial uh things and then they just put decided to put it in the games but it's hilarious that, yeah it's just called the joystick david do you have anything to contribute to this conversation or are you just going to stay on mute for the rest of the show i was just reliving reliving my own traumatizing gaming experiences and in contemplating how much of a first sort problem it is but it is true that these can be infuriating when <laughs> when either the <laughs> uh, the controlling is bad or the story is bad or you have eight ammo for whatever reason and not 80 or a gazillion or whatever and the game would be actually pretty boring and simple if you had enough ammo but they just give you eight and suddenly it's a game unfortunately my uh traumatizing gaming experiences like manic minor and things like this <laughs> right. I'm, too, I'm too i'm too old for it to be <laughs> anything vaguely shoot up maybe maybe the first rendition of doom hmm. uh when it was all you know when it was probably like playing uh what's that what's the mine Mine thing. Mines, Minesweeper? No, not Minesweeper. Or Minecraft. What's the, Minecraft, it's all squares and blocks. I mean, yeah. So, yeah, I'm too old. You can get back to spinning your joy crown, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I remember a day before computer. I've, I've still got an original grandstand. Oh, no way. Was we that, had one of those. <laughs> was, was that whereby the, the pleasure was literally the two slightly oblong boxes yep. knocking a square across an imaginary tennis that court. That was tennis. And that was tennis for you. There we go. That was entertainment. I remember trying to persuade my father to plug that into the back of a very old television uh, way back in the day. So there we go. That's the history of We're showing our age now. <laughs> we are very much showing our age now. Let's uh, leave that. I do also still have a Commodore 64 in its original box. If anyone would like to make me an offer, then it's all sitting there. This is the benefit of having yeah. several large sheds, isn't it? Or, you know, barns. Yes. You can just keep all this stuff forever. Every Rick will take a working or non-working Seiko or citizen of the same era. <laughs> That's right. I'll have a nice pogue, please, if you don't mind. Uh, good stuff. Right. Let's uh, talk about some articles on the website. First up this week. Uh, the Monday article from the comments. This is by Jake, the NATO trademark. Troll strikes again. Ariel, you're the trademark attorney. Would you like to comment on this article? Basically, so that anything goes wrong, they sue you and not me. Yeah, well, 
This is an issue that I actually didn't get to discuss fully with Jake yet. I, I'm learning about it as well. I think that what's so fascinating to me about it is if you look at the details, it's not as clear as it seems. It's not that NATO as an entity is going after someone, but there appears to be a third party, and again, correct me if I'm wrong here, that somehow has been able to register NATO watch straps, even though this person's business has nothing to do with the NATO Defensive Alliance, <laughs> and is preventing people from referring to their straps as NATO straps, even though it is not an origination, it's a type, and it's sort of a controversy because it it is quite apparent to if most people that this, this is not a trademark that is granted uh, in a way that makes sense, or if it made sense at the time, it no longer makes sense given the usage of NATO straps. So it should be uh, rescinded, so to say, and an examination should sort of be done. And it's sort of a, a, a once in a while, intellectual property issues have such a big impact, and trademark is a big thing. Uh, usually, watch brands like Rolex are accused of being, you know, very defensive about their trademark. And what people don't necessarily realize is they have to assert their trademarks by defending it or else they could lose it. In this instance, you see you appear to have sort of a, a predatory use. So it's sort of a strange situation, but there appears to be some business out there that has a trademark on, on NATO as applied to watch straps when uh, it's not like Kleenex in the sense that you don't think of a company that made it, you think of a type and and not and not someone who originated it. So um, that's the sort of gist of the article, and it's quite interesting. Mm. So this is a company, you can go onto the website and have a scroll down, but they appear to have registered the word NATO in a number of things. So if you want to produce elbow guards for athletic use and call them NATO in any such way, then this person also owns the trademark copyright, whatever it is, from the US legal system. I'm not sure how this applies when you go cross borders. Presumably, it's more difficult to enforce internationally because it's more expensive to do anything about it. But as I understand it, the problem here is probably not the enforcing of it against the individual companies, but the pointing out of a potential patent trademark issue to social media platforms where companies that also use the term NATO are and the reaction of those hosting companies is immediately just to go, oh, this is too complicated. We don't want to get involved in this. Let's remove this Instagram account or website or whatever it is rather than actually going through the full due process. And if it's being done against small companies, they're probably not going to fight it. It's, it's an expensive thing to do as many of those that have come across Rolex and it's like a Vortic and Swatch Group uh, understood just how much these kind of actions uh, can cost. David, you got any experience of this? This strikes me as the kind of story you might be across or have heard bits and pieces of over the period. Yes, I actually have come across this. Um, I don't know the person directly, but there is a guy here in Hungary who makes some of the highest quality, well, we cannot call them NATO anymore, but like NATO straps. And um, he, he invested very heavily into his own um, weaving machines and, and his own patterns and everything else. And it's, it's genuinely up there with the best OEM straps you can get. 
at any of the luxury brands and probably even better in some cases and and so of course he he was also approached by this uh, by the owner of, of these uh, trademarks or whatever you want to call them and yeah I, I felt like this is this is a very difficult situation and I you know I was contacted about it and I said well the only thing I can I can say about it is is but also Ariel mentioned that you know you cannot just have something like this in your drawer and have it idle for like 10 15 years and then realize you have it and then try and enforce it through others right so what you have to do is you have to take care of these things uh, in action and in practice for example Ferrari used to have their own 250 uh, car and then a Swiss company made a 250 a few years ago that the original car is from the 1960s and Ferrari sued them and they lost because you know they were told you can't have something like this for 60 years not do anything with it you haven't made another 250 for 60 years so obviously someone someone else can come and say less, uh, that they have done something like that so again that was the case and even Ferrari's lawyers couldn't do uh, anything about it so to me it is kind of weird that someone could do this with, with the NATO uh, things, but again, a lot of these are very small companies, and they just can't pick a fight because they just get scared, and maybe they will have to like pay a flat fee or something like that and settle outside of court. Yeah, I, th I think the implication here is that the company concerned effectively offers to license the use of the name, and so just makes a a percentage on any company that wants to maintain the use of the registered trademark. I don't know to what extent that's correct, but uh, it seems it seems a reason. Not, it it no, is a business model a, in the United States. Model, yes. It's not a particularly yeah. well respected one, and it might happen no. in other places. It is, I guess, you could say, predatory by nature. Um, there are certain, you know, little niches where it thrives. This would be a very strange niche for sure to go after people making watch straps. But essentially, as long as the trademark is valid. Uh, People who can make money off of it will try to. Um, you could invalidate it, but that requires an expensive legal process because the you know the 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 U.S. Uh, Patent and Trademark Office isn't just going to sort of open up the books every single time someone has an issue with it. So um, essentially, they have an asset that that may not survive scrutiny, but as long as it's on the books and and enough people refuse to fight. Here's the thing: if they go to you, if a patent troll or a trademark troll goes to you, you can just ignore them. In order yeah. to actually get you to do something, they will then have to go through a legal proceeding. Legal take and, action. And they will, yeah, they will have to win. So one response to them is, I think you're wrong. Would you survive a fight? Because if you, if you go after someone with a patent or trademark and you lose, you can often lose your, your trademark if it's found invalidated in that process. So it's a risky mm -hmm. process to fight against a bad trademark because you could, you could lose it and that's a risk. So this is what one of the, what they would say is sort of a case waiting to happen. I think the issue is though that there. I, I hear what you're saying. If somebody would actually say, I'm just ignoring this, then it may sort itself out in the wash. But I think the problem is that a number of the advertising platforms are getting a fright or being frightened off from allowing companies that are using it to actually advertise the product. So if your main way of selling NATO straps is Instagram and you submit something to Instagram that says this person shouldn't be using this because I own it 
and Instagram just go, right, okay, well, we'll you know, we don't care. We'll just delete it. It's no skin off our nose. We're providing a free service at the end of the well, day. But there's things you can do. There's things yeah. you can do. You can counterclaim, which opens up a proceeding with Instagram, and they have to go through the motions. They can't really say no because it's it's not really fair. You could also get around it. For example, a very common thing is to do is just say NATO style. Therefore, you are asserting that it's you're not NATO. It's just in the style of that. But there's really no other way of describing these. You can't just be like nylon because they're not all nylon and there's, you know, different. It, it, it's a style, really. So yeah, saying yeah. NATO style or referring to it as a descriptive thing um, is a solution. And when you do that enough, you show that it has become generic. And so I I would feel very comfortable going up against something like this fighting. Um, but there there are these issues. And like I said, it does require um, a David to fight a Goliath in this instance. Um, and it's easy just to back down and be like, I don't want to fight this thing. But again, we can say NATO style, NATO style, NATO style all day long. And that's, and that's fine. Well, we happen to have a David. David, do you fancy taking up this fight? <laughs> No, how about no? <laughs> Doesn't sound like a biblical fight to me. <laughs> Probably I'm not going to get a statue either. I've just been keeping count and so far that word has been used, uh, we'll say N-A-T-O has been used 27 times in the last four minutes. <laughs> So expect a cease and desist letter coming anytime soon, as um, will probably the podcast wait. that I used to enjoy called The Grey NATO. Yes, I, I wonder I wonder to what extent... See if we just changed all our Instagram handles for a day, like, to and put NATO after it. We should say something like, not Rolex's show. <laughs> Could David still keep his underscore? Would that be David underscore NATO? <laughs> yeah. I think I think David you need to sacrifice your underscore for just David NATO a blog to watch NATO David NATO David David yeah <laughs> good work well really interested in your view especially if you happen to be in the business of selling NATO style straps then we'd really like to hear from you but do go and check out the comment section on the blog to watch article it is proving particularly popular and particularly active and we'd really be interested in your feedback. If you want to get in touch with us so directly, then email podcasts at ablogtowatch.com. Well, we welcome to the show someone that I've been very keen to speak to. And now that the aftermath of all things Geneva has settled down, we look forward to the next big thing on the calendar. And it is the return of Dubai Watch Week for its sixth edition. So welcome to the show, Director General great sounding title Hind Siddiqui from Dubai watching Hind how are you hi Rick I'm very well thank you how are you I am great and all the better for speaking to you so tell me sixth edition do you think when you started you would one day end up celebrating it for the sixth time I mean yes I mean we 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 started Dubai watch week you know with a with a vision what we weren't expecting is the rapid growth and the feedback from the industry and the success that we were able to achieve in this short period of time. Obviously, everybody asks us, you know, please do it every year, please do it every year. <laughs> I don't think it's something we can do every year. Maybe this changes, when, you know, as we progress. But for the moment, I think this gap year helps a lot. It helps the brands prepare themselves as well, because we welcome a lot of international launches, a lot of special editions. So the brands need time to, to create these models. Plus, we need, you know, we need time to, to prepare as well. So I think the gap here is a, it's, is a good break. 
So how long ago did you start preparing for the sixth edition? We immediately start preparing. <laughs> I mean, you won't believe it, but we we are going to open the the list for brands to participate for 2025 already. And one of the challenges of Dubai Watch Week is the space and the limited amount of, of booths that we have. So in order for us to, you know, to keep the conversations going with the brands who would like to participate with us, we're actually taking the intent, their intent in participating in 2025 from now. So you can imagine for 2023 already, we had discussions with many brands who came and attended maybe for the first time, some of them who were already regular participants, but had requests, you know, for can we do this next time? You know, can you give me this space next time? So we were already discussing with them since 2021. So what is moving around this year, if anything, to create more space? Do we expect there to be more brands this year? <laughs> we do have more brands. Dubai Watch Week sacrificed a, a big chunk of space that was dedicated to its program in order for us to be able to give room uh, you know, for more brands to participate with us. So in 2021, we were the build-up area was around 70,000 square feet. And this year, it's going to be 100,000 okay. square feet. So we basically have more standalone booths outside than we had in 2021. We had six in 2021. We're going to have 10 standalone booths outside, which is something we're seeing there's more appetite towards. Like the brands really want more space where they can, you know, build their own brand persona into the booths because the booths that are inside the exhibition tent, they're all unified. They're, they're all the same. But then when you have a standalone booth outside, you can create an experience for your visitors because you have the space, you know, for you to be creative with. So we're seeing there's more demand for standalone booths. So the show dates themselves is the 16th to the 20th of November. What can we expect to be different this time around in terms of in addition to what people have experienced in 2021? I mean, our pillars remains the same. So we still have Horology Forum and we still have Creative Hub going on and we have our master classes as well. So these three pillars are going to be the same. However, in the Horology Forum, we are we are bringing back the debates which we launched and introduced during the New York edition last September because we felt it was a really nice approach. So we're bringing the debates back. So that's something new. We are completely changing the way we manage Creative Hub, and we're bringing a new a new way for for brands to uh, represent themselves. Whether it's a launch, whether it's a big topic in the industry that we need to talk about, whether there's any new research, so we're gonna we're gonna uh, recreate the Creative Hub uh, program, um, and then the masterclass remains the same. What's new is. We have one brand that's participating with a massive, massive exhibition and they're first time participants. Okay. So that would be something new. And it's the first time that Dubai Watch Week gives that size of space to any brand. Right. So, so that's coming and that's exciting. Of course, we, we, you know, we care a lot about the, the, the FNB around as well. And we always take feedback from our visitors and especially from the press and from visitors coming from abroad on what would they like to, you know, what would they like, they like to eat when they're at the Biowatch Week? I think it's important because they spend most of their days there. So we're, we're also adding a new uh, F&B concept to the whole area. We have a lot of new participating brands within the exhibition tent. 
And as always, we have a lot of international launches and special editions that are created specifically for it by Watch Week. And are you able to tease us yet with anyone that's going to be showing up that hasn't showed up before? The next time you speak to me, I will. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's a promise. (laughs) Good stuff. Now, there seemed to also be this year a bit more of a focus on the locals in Dubai themselves getting involved and tourists from the region visiting i think one thing that was noticeable last time was that there was quite a degree of interest actually from the dubai community as well as obviously the dubai watch collecting community correct yes i mean one of our biggest missions we have is to make is to make the general public you know feel that this exhibition is not only for watch geeks or watch enthusiasts or collectors it's actually a place for you to come and learn about this industry for you to explore it because as as you know we're not a, we're not a commercial exhibition so we're 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 more we're more focused on transmitting knowledge basically and sharing you know what why we love this industry so much what's so amazing in it but also bringing you know cross industries into to you know to appreciate you know like designers uh, fine art students engineers we want to attract as many people, you know, who are who know nothing about the watch industry. Mm. In order for us to attract the, the public, we focus a lot on the on the activations and the programs we have that are around, you know, other other things like we have treasure hunts. We had treasure hunts last time. We bring different elements into the master class. We do a lot of programs for the children as well. So families feel, you know, it's a place they can bring their kids. And it was very successful in 2021. And I think the FNB and the entertainment program we have also attract the general public to come so i think we'll be very lucky because every year you know our our direct messages on instagram is is by what we're happening this year and it's mostly from the locals because they feel you know it's, it's it's it has become a dubai event they all wait for it so we have no doubt that we'll be able to attract more and more people this year yes it does seem to increasingly be something that the dubai community are actually proud of having yeah. in their own location in the same way that people in Geneva are proud that you know Geneva's seen as a centre it very much appears that the, the people in Dubai are, are really keen on this event yeah it's a really nice event I have to I mean not because I'm the director general but it's really fun. <laughs> no bias at all <laughs> even even my children you know like all the children in the family they always whenever they see me like the first thing they ask is Dubai what's happening can can we volunteer my uncle says you know it's like a wedding you know in the in the in the past our wedding just last like seven nights so everybody you know who who lives around the 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 house of the groom or the bride would be there and Mm -hmm. celebrate together and you'll see them every day and that's exactly how Dubai Watch Week is the same person on average would visit at least twice but we see them like we see them throughout the whole five days so they come in the evening you know they, they they already they were already there in the morning they come in the evening with their friends so it's like a gathering, a family gathering of like, or a community gathering where people just come and just enjoy being around, you know, the, the people they know, but also getting to know other people and meeting the collectors and trying to sit in these talks that happen between the collectors or in the horology forum to sort of understand why, why is there such a big hype around this industry? And we, I think we've successfully converted a lot of people. Know, to become watch enthusiasts. Yes, yes. So before we say goodbye to you for just now, we will be catching up with you again, uh, hopefully a couple of times before the event itself. Explain how people can actually go to 
Dubai Watch Week. So we've talked about the public. What are people going to need to do to actually be able to get in? Can they just turn up? Do they need a ticket? How, how is it going to work? It's so simple. We're a free event. All you have to do is enter to the website, register, generate the QR code, and that's all you need to enter the event. So all you have to do is at the door of the event, scan the QR code, just go in and enjoy. You can just walk around into the exhibitions, or if you would like to, you know, to enter to the master classes and to any of the horology forums, any of the creative hubs, we're going to have also meet and greet sessions, you know, with watchmakers and and personalities that people would like to meet. And all of that schedule is going to be on the Dubai Watch Week website. And registration will open actually um, next month. Excellent. Well, we'll hopefully speak to you again just as that's opening. But if you want to go and get the website bookmarked so as you can get ready to register, where should people be visiting? What's the web address? It's DubaiWatchWeek.com. Excellent. Well, Hind, thank you very much for joining us. It was great to speak to you. Really looking forward to what's coming up and all those secrets you're going to reveal to us next time. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Rick. It was a pleasure. Okay, Ariel, we've had David, we've had... Watches and Wonders, Dubai Watch Week towards the end of the year. We've also got Geneva Watch Days towards the end of the year. How much are you looking forward to being hopefully in Dubai when it's sunny rather than in Geneva when it's wet and rainy to look at watches? It's a totally different type of event. I mean, what we go to in Geneva is very much a trade show. In Dubai, it's a festival for Watch Love. Uh, they like to think of it as a summit where they bring important personalities together to talk and to check out watches, to meet with you know buyers that are local and come from the surrounding region. It's it's kind of a very much of a, of a party atmosphere. And and you know I some people are are I guess partying, but I wouldn't say that Watches of Wonders um, is what what you would call a, a party event. It's very much a work event. Yeah, it was so interesting interviewing Hind just about how excited they are. It clearly is something that is such a passion for them to organise and they so appreciate just how it's been accepted, I suppose, into the calendar of everything that watch geeks and watch fans love to look forward to. I mean, who to. doesn't like a party? They're literally putting on a lavish event. A lot of the people are being brought there. It is... I mean, it's it's in a city that is, um, you know, very celebratory. It feels very alive. It feels good. I mean, no one goes to Geneva, for example, to feel like they're in the heart of modernity and that things are happening, or or you know, c culture is alive and, and and evolving around them. Dubai is one of those interesting places. It's the crossroads of a lot of different cultures, and there is a very ha healthy appetite for watches there. You you really feel like you're in the epicenter of, of part of the demand engine uh, for these products. And again, you know, if you're the Siddiqui family, then, you know, you're there for a week and you have friends from all around the world that are there all the time and wanting to chit chat with you and say, thank you so much for doing all this. I mean, of course, they're excited about it. It must feel fantastic. Mm. And it sounds like there's going to be some very big announcements coming for the show. I'm not quite sure who it is, or, but uh, there's there's clearly some uh, big movers and shakers. Somebody's going to be celebrating a very big anniversary who hasn't been there before. So we shall see who that turns okay, out to be. Okay, let's be honest. Every single a time a brand celebrates an anniversary, best case scenario, <laughs> there's something new and expensive to buy. 
I'm just saying, well, like, I, I mean, like, retailers can get very <laughs> excited by this. Consumers, I, I think we've just grown a lot. All right. Okay. Well, I mean, I don't. Uh, are Chanel likely to be there? Chanel. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, good stuff. Not, not well, I, yes, the Ariel suitcases will be banned from the show. So, anyway, really looking forward to Dubai Watch Week. Uh, I think it's just really interesting that it is basically if you want to go, you register when the registration is open, and you get yourself a ticket that are free, and along you go, and you join the party, and you celebrate. It just sounds so much more family orientated. And like it will just be one big watch celebration. So look forward to that later in the year and we'll hear more from Hind as the time goes on. Let's talk about some watches. Hi, I'm Ariel Adams, founder of A Blog to Watch with a message from eBay, a platform I probably use daily. Make sure your watches are the real deal with eBay Authenticity Guarantee. I believe it's the first and best service of its kind that protects your luxury purchases and checks each watch individually at eBay's highly reputable authentication partner, Stolen Company, in the United States. From band to bezel, their authenticators ensure each wristwatch matches the eBay listing and is the real deal. Authenticity guarantee is also very fast. Once authentication is complete, your watch is securely delivered via rapid two-day shipping. Surprisingly, eBay's authenticity guarantee service is free for all watches priced $2,000 and up. No one should buy a luxury item without an authenticity guarantee. Do what I do and check eBay before each watch purchase because everyone deserves real. So first up this week is a watch we can't quite talk about because this show goes out a few hours before the embargo ends at three o'clock. But we can tell everybody because they have been dropping images of it all week that Christopher Ward have something big and new on its way at 3pm today if you're listening to this on Thursday. Ariel has been wearing the watch or has it in his possession and has had it for a good wee while. I have seen it also and if you check out the website later on today at 3 o'clock you will get to see I assume Ariel's article and my interview with Mike France about all things Christopher Ward. Ariel what do you think it's reasonable to tell the good people? It's steel we can tell them that because you can tell from the Instagram account that it's steel. What else do you think that this release is going to say about Christopher Ward? Uh, they're not all steel. You can't say that. We just know that it's steel from the image. I don't think you can tell that one of them's maybe not steel. But yeah, they're not all steel. I'm they just saying that's, that's highly, highly misleading if you talk about steel that way. They may I'm or just may trying... not be steel. The Imperial Seal, and there are no NATO straps involved. <laughs> At least not that we know of. Look, it's a very satisfying type of product that Christopher Ward is good at doing. They're, t- they're good at taking what they see as being uh, a trend or a theme and rendering it with their own style and putting in a lot of features and making sure that it's priced very competitively and to uh, do their best to make sure that it's the type of thing that an enthusiast really lusts after. And I think they've done a really good job. It's, it's, um, you know, it, it's, it's not the last great product they'll ever make, but um, it, it's, it's, an, it's, it's another hit for them for sure. And I think we can tell that there are pictures, there are bolts involved. There are visible screw head bolt type assemblies involved. If that gives a hint as to which way it's going. That it's screwed together. (laughs) That it's screwed together rather than glued or Velcroed. From your experience of wearing it, is it a satisfying wear? Does it scratch the itch that maybe, shall we say, this kind of watch 
scratches at a much lower cost than maybe some um you know more you know older iterations of a similar style of maybe steel uh, sports watch from the past well i think the smart thing they did was not price it at the absolute bottom i mean there's mm. definitely lower you can spend for a mechanical version of this watch, even from big brands. So they're not the low price leader, but they are a fraction of the price compared to some of the, the, the much more expensive brands that they want to feel that their product is similar to. You really do get a lot of bang for your buck, and it is an attractive product. Um, you know, there's so many different versions of this type of watch out there right now. A lot of it comes down to a matter of taste. But when I said that they were smart, what I think it was good is mm. they look like they're a higher end product but for lower price so rather than being the entry level model with the expected you know maybe cut corners here and there they have gone a a high-end entry-level product which i think is very exciting for the demographic which feels like it's not the cheapest thing out there but it still represents a high value proposition item when compared to the uh quote-unquote luxury goods out there so i think that it's going to hit the mark with the consumer that they they talk to very nicely and Mike was particularly keen to speak about the finishing of this watch. Uh, from what I've seen, the finishing does look to be particularly high bang for the buck. Is that your experience of, of wearing it? So when it comes to finishing, I think what's important to discuss is it's the number of steps and processes. The more surfaces you have to polish or brush or this or that, the more expensive it is. So yes, there's a quality to the specific finishing, but... I think what brands get excited about is the number of steps that they can do to a case and a bracelet at a relatively low price point. You know, Audemars Piguet with, you know, the, the, you know, the Royal Oak likes to discuss how, how many different steps and how this needs to be hand polished. And oh my God, it takes forever to make this bracelet. A lot of it is, is automated, but it's true that there's a lot of steps. So I think that the human eye really has a high level of appreciation for watches that have cases and bracelets with a lot of, of, of steps applied to it. And I think that's really what we're talking about. Good stuff. Well, as I think myself and Ariel are the only ones that have seen this, I'm not sure, Simon, David, <laughs> what you would like to contribute to this discussion on Christopher Ward. Well, yeah, I really, um, really appreciate being invited to uh, come onto a show to talk about a watch that may or may not exist yet. And, um, <laughs> and we're not you're very welcome, sir. Anytime, anytime. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I do it for the people. Imagine your ideal Christopher Ward, and this is probably it. <laughs> now, I have seen them. Um, I've seen some of the teaser pictures, um, teaser images that they've been releasing on Insta, and um, I think clearly the finishing on these images is something they're very keen to try and get across from uh, in those teasers. So it's obviously going to be a, a, a big part of um, of how they're going to be selling this watch, or one of the, the features of it, let's say. Um, but, you know, wish them uh, every success with this. Um, I think it's interesting to see them going into a slightly different direction for that brand, even if it's not, let's say, unique. Yes, so uh, no NATO options, as I understand it. <laughs> Let's talk about a watch that we have handled, or at least one of us has handled. David, did you finally get hold of your Hublot? No, I don't think I ever, ever will, actually. Um, that's just gone. <laughs> um, I think... you've, you've written a hands-on review of a half-million-pound Hublot. Is this not the one you are collecting? No, the one I was collecting is a measly $100,000 or something like that. And um, it was sent out <laughs> as, a, as, a, as a piece um, from their carnet, you know, to review. And 
I'm pretty sure someone just just bought it from the boutique before I could actually take pictures of it. I, that's just I'm not sure if that that's what happened, but the fact is that I've never seen that watch, even though it's supposed to have arrived like over a month ago. So I will have to ask for another one and maybe have it shipped directly to me this time. Either that or Simon's been smuggling stuff across European borders uh, <laughs> yeah. using watches. It's really? an original concept. So tell us about the blue sapphire then that you reviewed. Oh, wow. That's that's just a cool watch. I mean, we, we all saw it at uh, Watches and Wonders and we all want to, wanted to put it on our wrist and just like, check it out. It feels and looks very cool so and great. very fragile. <laughs> it's, uh, basically, one of my first questions to somebody from below there was, like, okay, how, how shock resistant is this or unresistant? I should say and basically they said well if you have a ceramic bracelet watch and you drop it from a meter like three feet um, high onto a hard floor it will shatter this shatters from half that height so 50 centimeters or like maybe I don't know, like 20 inches so you have to be very careful with it uh, I asked you know does it shatter if you like bang it around or something like that and it's not supposed to but it does look very expensive and very fragile and that is a curious combination has anyone ever shattered watch-wise? Has anyone seen the result of dropping a watch from height? I've seen some things. I've seen, they haven't been terrible. The worst thing I saw was, I think, like a lug that broke off. So someone, I think they, I don't think they, I don't think it fell. I think they just jammed it into something just in sort of the wrong way. And the lug broke off. And look, I mean, the case needs to be replaced. Yes, that kind of sucks. But the chances are that you can't get it replaced are are low. Hopefully the brand doesn't charge an arm and a leg for it, though it is an expensive hmm. part. But yeah, that that can happen. I just it's 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 not particularly common. I really don't think it happens that often. I'm just curious as to what it looks like if you drop this sort of thing. Whether it is that it shatters into a million pieces if you drop it. 25,000 pieces. No, 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 no. What, what, what happens is, is that the parts that are machined will, will break. So for example, a, a link that a screw has to go through, you know, has a hole drilled and it's pretty fragile. If it falls on the wrong side there, that part might crack. So no, we're not talking about this thing shattering. Sapphire crystal is very hard, but it has weakness points that if you hit them, it can it can damage the integrity, especially since these are drilled pretty thin at times. So by no means is this thing just going to like, you know, break into like, uh, imagine like a, a glass bottle falling. Uh-huh. I, that's kind of what I'm curious as to whether it is like dropping a glass on a piece of concrete no. that it just goes into a million pieces or whether it is a bit of a thud and then a lug falls Look, off. this is Sapphire Crystal. Cry. People have had experience with this as on watch dials for how many decades now? Have we ever heard of this happening? No, like uh, this is a material that people are, are very used to. People have been banging it on things for a long time. How often do you hear about someone shattering the Sapphire Crystal on their watch dial? It's th This is as common as we're speaking. These parts that are machined are just a little bit more fragile, so a few more things can go wrong. But this is not that fragile of a material overall. I've got an interesting story about dropping a watch, actually, and um, the watch survived, but the floor didn't. Okay, let's sit back and enjoy Simon's story time. Uh, it was uh, it was an Oris uh, TT1, uh, one of the old style ones, and um, I managed to knock it off a surface in the kitchen onto slate tiles, and uh, the thing fell face down onto the tile with a huge bang, and expected the glass to be shattered and, and the whole thing to be wrecked, and this sort of puff of dust came up from the floor as it hit it, 
um, and the watch had a very, very tiny mark on the case, um, barely noticeable, um, but it cracked the tile. So I bet you were popular. <laughs> yeah, luckily I lived on my own at that point, so, you know. All right, okay. okay. <laughs> so you lost your deposit, that was it. Yeah, exactly, pretty much. If you missed last week's Spending Time podcast, then this is what you missed. Yeah, it requires a lot of, wor of work there. You know, I fly fish all those fishes myself, and then we, we massage them, and then uh, uh, we smoke them, and then we I think we even dip them in the old Scottish whiskey to get that very fine color that we have on the dive. Well, it's the Moser salmon. It's a very special sort of salmon that's very difficult to, uh, to get, and it is our salmon. Bizarrely, it's only 47 mil. It looks like it's much bigger than that. So it says, perfect for any world explorer, but you can't be in all these places at once. Is this like a watch for if you have a girl in every port? <laughs> it's the only way I can see this being useful for you. Five time zones? Successive. It just felt a bit ridiculous. Surely it's uncomfortable to wear. Yeah, like that's more crowns than the royal family. <laughs> That feels like it'd be a list all of its own. Watches with more crowns than the royal family. <laughs> Next week. <laughs> In Ben & Ross, there is the bell, the designer. I'm the Ross. But the most important is what is at the center, the N%. Since day one, we have a strong logo full of symbols. And the N% has been since day one in our philosophy, which is what I call union of expertise. We have been very open mind and also stating how we have been doing, working with other parties, because I think that the collaboration is something that it's a nice exchange. It means that when you're working with a bright watchmaker, a bright engineer, the common ideas between the creation and between the Tutting City, when they combine, they have a strong power. So if you don't want to miss out again, then subscribe to the Spending Time podcast now on your favourite podcast player. Let's talk about a watch that has probably attracted the most attention this week in terms of the comment section. And I think most of the comment sections are giving this a thumbs down rather than a thumbs up. I'm in the thumbs down, but that may be because I don't get the brand. And that is the hands-on debut Tudor Rowing Blazers Black Bay 58 collaboration watch. I, I mean, I just don't like this. I don't like the logo that they've put on it. What does this tell us about Tudor, about Rowing Blazers? What is Rowing Blazers <laughs> to those that are not familiar with it? Okay, I'll take this one. So Rowing Blazers is a fashion brand. They make clothing. It started uh, by a guy who literally uh, wrote a book on the jackets you would wear while rowing in England. He's an American guy, but he uh, studied in England, and he thought this was an interesting thing. His brand is cool, and he's quite successful. And what you're looking at is a product which takes a successful timepiece company and turns it into a fashion product, right? So this is not designed to be cool to anyone but the fashion audience. They take the legitimacy that is Tudor and they put a logo on there and they sort of pull it in to his universe of clothing, which is sort of a combination of streetwear and preppy wear. Like it, it merges the two in an interesting way. So it's street prep wear and a lot of it is sort of very retro themed, 80s and 90s. And this type of watch just fits that theme very well. Um, first, they did 
a Seika watch, which Blog to Watch debuted, um, and then they did a Zodiac watch, and now a Tudor one. So I've actually sort of seen them through this process. And again, this is not something which is designed for a watch enthusiast, unless you also happen to be a fan of the rowing blazers uh, brand aesthetic. So, I mean, here's the question. Why are we reporting about this? What's the significance of this that means that this is relevant to our audience? Because people like variations on popular species, right? So a Tudor Black Bay is a popular species of luxury product. And anytime there's a variation, it's like the car magazines reporting anytime someone gives a Ferrari a fancy paint job. Oh, look, it's in purple and gold for the first time. Like, why are they paying attention to a paint job? Well, because it's a variation on a popular species. And what does it tell us about Tudor that we are seeing this sort of thing happen? Or is is this marking up of watches with like you know is this like the domino's pizza rolex is it just that we generally don't see these things but this happens all the time or is this a is this a new development for tudor and actually saying you know can we go along as a blog to watch and getting a blog to watch logo and a tudor tudor over the years has gone back and forth between doing these sort of projects for clients where they do corporate ones or they sell to a store and when tudor sort of did its its global relaunch where it was, you know, selling watches again in the United States, it embarked on a journey of doing some of these limited editions, especially for a lot of retailers. And it did that because it wanted to champion um, some of its retailers to help them, you know, push the brand. And it overall worked out for Tudor. So in not too long history, uh, Tudor did a lot of this and then they sort of stopped doing it for a little while. And now they say they maybe do it very selectively. My suspicion is this project started a while ago when Tudor was doing that. And if you notice, this is, you know, this is Tudor Rolex conservatism, like no changes, just a logo on a dial and, 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 you know, an engraving on the back. And that is the maximum they do. Uh, for for anyone really, is logo on the dial and some engraving on the back. So they didn't give Rowing Blazers any special treatment at all. That's just sort of that 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 service. And they, on a very rare basis, I think have done it on a one-off basis. They do some very small um, little runs. You know, if a celebrity wants to get some watches for their friends or some piece of uh, some some member of aristocracy somewhere, uh, retailers get it once in a while. So this is you know one of those rare instances where I think this pro- this project probably started a while ago when Tudor was still doing this. But some of the messaging I've got from them is that this type of stuff is um, being wound down right now. And and you're probably not going to see more of this for quite some time, in my opinion. So the chances of us approaching Tudor and asking to get the word NATO put on the dial is unlikely to happen, David. (laughs) That would be an excellent way to sabotage them, but I'm sure their lawyers would be very excited. Finally, a challenge. Finally, (laughs) we can do something. (laughs) <laughs> uh, what do you guys think about this simon david well i wanted to ask actually i was quite curious um i really might might know more about this but um how tudor actually selects the brands that they are willing to work with so you were kind of jokingly talking about a blog to watch but you know if the blog to watch were to approach tudor you know what's the, what do they think the process might be and does it all come down to money at the end of the day is there a, a significant premium that that you have to pay in order to 
for them to, to work with you and do this kind of thing? It's it's the same calculus as high school popularity politics. <laughs> Make of that what you will. So a minefield then. It's hard to do. It's about both sides trying to pretend like they don't need the other side. One side's trying to look cooler, trying to make something that's better than the sum of the parts, trying to save face, trying to look exclusive, trying to look hip, trying to you know appeal to new audiences and cross-pollinate a little bit. I mean, there's a lot of things they do. I think the issue that brands have is they get asked to do this all the time. You know, brands like Zenith, for example, more commonly have done these. And that's opened up the floodgates. I mean, the amount of requests that Zenith gets, and Zenith is, you know, relatively open-minded to doing these things, is overwhelming. And so what happens is it kind of puts them in the defensive position where they're like, wait a minute, we don't want to say yes to anything. Um, Rowing Blazers is a successful fashion brand, and I think Tudor feels though as though it makes them look hip in front of an audience that they want to do well with for a number of years. So Tudor probably sees it as an investment in not just the, the small number of people that buy these watches, but the far larger number of people who, who are discovering Tudor through Rowing Blazers as opposed to discovering Rowing Blazers through Tudor. They believe that they will benefit in the long run. So I think so that that is value, the calculus. I guess you would say. Yes, yes. Well, we're nearly at a finish today, but just before we go, Ariel, uh, and I don't think anyone's been suing anybody over it, but the there have been some memes being made about people uh, who have been uh, uh, elected, co-opted, persuaded to join the LV Watch Prize jury. I see some people have been pretending that uh, they may have been chosen, but actually you genuinely have been chosen to be part of the LV Watch Prize. I, how excited are you about it? What's the wait, process wait, wait. now? I, I'm still focused on this, um, this memeing thing. Wait, people are joking about what exactly? So the, the little image that you posted of you, so LV have posted images of all of the jurors. Yeah. Surrounded by the LV logo. Uh, oh, and, wow. Okay. I mean, that's, number, that's, that's what they did. That I, wasn't my decision. <laughs> Yeah, and a number of people may have photoshopped themselves into that picture <laughs> uh, rather than the actual people who have been selected. So uh, I recommend a good uh, wander around Instagram oh my for gosh. some of those. I am, that, I'm uh, terrified right now. Look, I didn't make these graphics. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm there to try to make the thing, you know, as, as, as work well as possible. I think it's a cool thing they're doing. I see myself as a, a as a consultative expert who's trying to make this work out best for everyone. But you're right it, that that graphic kind of made it look like you know now I'm fighting for the LVMH army, which is not really what's going on. <laughs> what Rick's actually trying to say is that him and I photoshopped our images onto the. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think I think I, I think uh, this week's slide for the show might just be all of us photoshopped onto the image, <laughs> and with Ariel wearing a NATO. You know LVMH gets a lot of press i mean just generally you know because it's like what is it europe's you know richest company and things like that the like world's richest company uh, okay I, I i i don't i don't even read the financials all the time i mean but it's between it and uh, elon musk on a regular basis the two of them change places i mean lvmh does way more things i mean the amount of companies that they have is just it boggles my mind and watches are a very small amount of it i mean i think that's i think what's really humbling is that even though based upon the fact that all the Arnaud children are like doing stuff with watches, it really represents a small 
overall piece of the revenue. And I think it just goes to show why watches, because watches are fun and interesting, even though they don't make anyone a lot of money. They're so <laughs> sexy compared to selling, I guess, pretty much everything else. Everything I mean, else. <laughs> even the alcohol thing with all the parting and this and that doesn't seem to be nearly as interesting as watches. So what I find so fascinating amongst these luxury conglomerates, especially the ones that are diversified and have other things, is like all the main people seem to like hover around the watches, even though... Practically speaking, it's not worth their time uh, in terms of the ROI. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting conversation to be had in the future just about how the world of watches, when there are other options, just seems to be the one that attracts everybody because it's just so cool. So that is us for this week. You can look forward to more from the LV Watch Prize in the coming weeks. Uh, David, where can people find you on the internet this week? Uh, same as last week it's abtw underscore david on instagram and on the block to watch excellent and simon are you still escapement 24 or are you now escapement 24 underscore nato uh, i've just changed it yet on insta so that's my new handle no no um still escapement 24 on instagram and on youtube Excellent. And Ariel, what are you up to this week? Looking forward to traveling a little bit to Northern California. I'm going to be seeing a lot of watch people. There's also the Luftgekult. I think the, the second one in the last several months, which is the uh, the air-cooled Porsche event happening uh, in the same area that I'm going to be. Then I'm going to the wind-up event in San, in San Francisco. So there's going to be a lot of watch stuff. There are some cool watches coming out, like you said. So it's going to be exciting next few months. Excellent. Well, thank you for joining us. Join us again next week. Goodbye. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone.